All right, please uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's good to be singing Christmas songs and uh, good to be in the Christmas season, the holiday season. We have so many people that are missing today. We have some sicknesses in our fellowship and I'm sure... There are people traveling. I know the Rices were down in Arizona, so make note of who's gone, not to be mean to them, but to uh, pray for them and encourage them, okay? The Bible tells us to mark certain people. Uh, Not in that sense do we want to mark their names, but we want to uh, be caring for them and see what we can do, especially if they're dealing with sickness, see if there's anything you can do to serve them. That would be a real blessing. But 1 Corinthians 14 is where we'll be today. This is a chapter about the place of tongues and the place of prophecy. It's difficult to make application of this chapter. It's a a really difficult chapter. I didn't realize how difficult it is until started getting into our study, preparing for today and the weeks ahead. I want to read to you a quote from Chrysostom, an early church father. He lived from 347 to 407, so we're going way back. From Chrysostom, he said this about 1 Corinthians 14, This whole passage is very obscure. All right. But the obscurity arises from our ignorance of the facts described, which, though familiar to those to whom the apostle wrote, they have ceased to occur. Now, he's talking about tongues and prophecy, these miraculous sign gifts. He was living some 300 years, 300 plus years at the time of that quote, after 1 Corinthians 14 had been written. And Prophecy and tongues and other miraculous sign gifts had ceased by that point. And so going back and looking at what was happening in that church, we read these things and we say, well, that's different. What does that mean for us today? So that's the great endeavor that we're on together is we're going to seek application from this passage to us today. It is important to note this is the only passage like this in Paul's writings. You know, Paul wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. He wrote to several churches And you won't find another passage like this in any other letter. In fact, you won't find him speaking of tongues in any of his letters. You'll find very scant mention of prophecy. You see it in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he just says, don't despise prophetic utterances, and that's it. And in a lot of letters, it's not mentioned at all. So we're going to try our best, as this whole chapter is focused on tongues and prophecy, we're going to do our best to understand what was going on in Corinth, and what that means for us today. With all that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 5 again from 1 Corinthians 14, and then I'll open with a prayer. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, "'Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God.' For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues." unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Well, I want to start off today by talking about the goal of our gathering. 
the church service, as we often call it, or the meeting or the gathering, the fellowship, whatever word you want to use. What is our goal as we gather together? I believe in these first five verses, we have goals presented before us that we should be seeking as we meet. And I want us to start with principles that transcend every generation of believers. We can look back and say, well, this was just for them because they had those miraculous sign gifts then that they were dealing with. And we don't have those today, so this isn't for us. Well, that's not quite the case. There are some things that will be harder for us to make application, but at least in these first five verses, I think we can see some very pertinent information and even some rebukes for us as we consider why we gather. Paul is directing the church here to get her priorities straight when they gather together. When they come together for corporate worship, priorities must be in order. And I want to talk about the two main elements that should motivate our corporate worship, our fellowship, and that's understanding and edification. We see these words here in our passage today, understanding and edification. But if you're taking notes, let me give you some definitions for these words. Understanding is the result of comprehending a teaching from God. The result of comprehending a teaching from God. Edification is the result of receiving ministry from God's people. The result of receiving ministry from God's people. Now, each one of these elements, understanding and edification, can happen on a personal level and it can happen outside of the gathered corporate worship. Hopefully you've experienced this. Hopefully you experience it every week. As you study your Bible, as you listen to sermons, as you listen to teachings, your understanding grows on a personal level. As you are communing with God by prayer and uh, the ways that you worship Him individually throughout your day, hopefully you're being edified on an individual level, even outside of our corporate gathering. But what we have in view today is the corporate elements of worship. As we come together as a body, we are pursuing both understanding and edification, the results of comprehending teachings from God and the results of receiving ministry from God's people. So let's start with understanding and talk about that for a moment. For everyone to be edified or built up in the congregation, there must be understanding. If everyone is going to grow, if everyone's going to come together and we gather together as a local church seeking to live out the calling that God has given us to grow up in Him and not just knowledge but love and, and grace and mercy, if we're going to do that, there has to be a baseline understanding of what God's Word is teaching. Understanding necessarily precedes edification in the corporate gathering of God's people. We have to know what's going on before we can be built up by it. And I want you to notice at the start here, as we consider this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, that it's the responsibility of every member of the body to promote understanding. It's not just the responsibility of certain people within the body, it's the responsibility of the entire church. You'll notice that this letter was written to the entire body, including this chapter. This chapter wasn't set aside and uh, given specifically to certain people within the church, but this chapter, as with the rest of the letter, is given to the church as a whole. It's the responsibility of every member of the local church to promote 
understanding and knowledge and truth in the body. And this is important for you to consider because we live in a time when people hate certainty. We live in a time when people like the things that are questionable, mysterious. People love mysteries and they love questions and they love doubts and they hate certainty in many cases. People don't like it when you stand up and say, this is true, this is right, we have to conform to this reality. People, especially in our day and age, like to sit back and make everything questionable. But it's the duty of the church to promote what is certain from the Word of God. There will always be things that will fit into that category of mystery. We're not going to pretend like we know all things. Or that all things that have been revealed to us are equally clear in the way that we apply them. We understand that that's not the case. Yet we also understand that God has spoken. And that there are many doctrines that we get from the Word of God that we are not able to budge on. There are many doctrines that we get from the Word of God that are absolutely certain, and those are hills that we'll die on. We can't say we might be wrong about that. There are many doctrines that we can't be wrong about because God has said them, He has spoken them, He has presented them to us in such a clear, direct way. Let's not promote mysteries in the church, but let's promote understanding. Our motivation for being here, even today as we're gathered together, our motivation should be not only to know things, to learn things, but also to make things known and to help teach other people, each one of us promoting understanding and promoting truth. Our commitment to one another includes not just coming and learning, but also speaking to others and helping others understand, coming alongside and even teaching and instructing other people. So as we consider the two main elements of understanding and edification, particularly with understanding, our goal of gathering is to promote truth, to promote what we are certain about based on the Word of God. And yet, at the same time, we are seeking to edify. As we understand, as we make plain the Word of God through our reading of it, through the Holy Spirit's work through us, we are edified. We understand and we are edified. It's the result of receiving ministry from God's people. And our ministries should be saturated in our understanding of God's Word. That's why understanding has to precede edification. As you consider the ways you minister to God's people and you build them up, the gifts God has given you, the certain abilities God has given you, as you consider those ways that God has equipped you to serve in His church, those ministries must be saturated in the Word of God because understanding precedes edification. The purpose of our meeting is for all to be edified together. That word for edification that you see in a few places in our text today, you see it in verse 3, and you see it in verse 4, and you see it in verse 5, it really means house building. That's what the word means. The word edification means house building. And we are God's house, aren't we? You see this illustration in 1 Corinthians in multiple places, chapter 3, and, and in some other places as well, that we are God's house. And as we come together, It's our calling, it's our desire, it should be our desire to build up God's house. This both happens in our brain and it happens in our soul, but never apart from the truth. 
always through the Word of God, by the Word of God, through the revelation God has given us, do we grow in our knowledge? Are we built up in our knowledge? And are we built up in our spirit? And this includes, if you look at verse 3, this includes some other elements when we think about edification. I like to look at verse 3 as edification being the umbrella term and these other two terms being underneath that word. It says, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and, here are two other words, exhortation and consolation. Exhortation and consolation. So as we come together for corporate edification, it includes exhortation, which is earnestly instructing or coaching. It's a word that means to come alongside someone else and help that person think rightly about something from God's Word. Opening up the Bible with somebody and saying, this is what God has said, and this is how it could apply to your situation. Instructing, coaching, persuading, encouraging the person to respond. In a lot of ways, this is what preaching and teaching is. Coming out and exhorting the people of God to live in a certain way as they think rightly about something by the Word of God. That's exhortation. The other word, consolation, is extremely similar. It's the only place in the whole New Testament where this specific word comes up, the original Greek word, and it means to sincerely care for somebody, to reassure somebody. Again, the idea of coming alongside a person and relieving that person of certain burdens, helping to bear that person's burden. You think of Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. Same idea here with consolation, to help hearten somebody. If someone's disheartened, you want to hearten that person and lift that person's spirits. As exhortation is to help people think rightly about something by God's Word, Consolation is to help people feel comfort about something by God's Word. Not only do we want people to think rightly, but we want the people of God to feel comfort no matter what they're going through because they have the God of all comfort in their lives and they have the Word of God from the God of all comfort. These two words are so closely related that I, was, I would go as far to say that you can't really have one without the other. You can't exhort without having with it the consolation that comes by the Spirit. And you can't really console somebody or comfort somebody without the true proclamation of the Word of God, without that exhortation. I thought of, as I was thinking through these concepts, I thought of 1 Thessalonians 4.18, where Paul's writing about the coming of Christ, and he says at the end of that, therefore, comfort one another with these words. With what words? Well, with the hope the glorious hope that the church has of the return of Christ and being with Him forever, that we will always be with the Lord, that He is coming again, and that there's no reason to despair. That's really doctrinal, isn't it? There's a lot of doctrine in that, but there's a lot of comfort in that too, isn't there? The two go together. As we are edified together, we are built up in our understanding. We are comforted in our knowledge. We have understanding. We have edification these synonymous words come together and describe our pursuit in corporate worship. The commentator Robert Gramacki said that as we come together, we should be seeking to stir up and to cheer up, to exhort and to console, to stir up and to cheer up. So what are we after as we gather together? Boy, if you got honest answers from people on that, what are you after when you show up to a meeting on Sunday morning? 
That would probably be an interesting list. We'll just say interesting. Interesting is a good adjective because it can mean really good or really bad, and no one knows what you mean, and so you can just say interesting. Uh, That would be an interesting list if you got honest answers from most people who go to a church service on Sunday mornings, what they're after. Well, Scripture here is telling us that what we should be after is, number one, understanding, corporate understanding knowing truth, knowing the God of truth, having certainty about what God has said, that should be first and foremost. But right with that, inextricable from that, the other side of that coin would be edification. Not only understanding, but edification. Caring for one another's particular needs with the truth as the foundation. Seeking to care for one one another's particular needs, but never apart from truth, always through truth. Corporate building up, corporate house building, God's house. And what Paul is talking about in our passage today regarding tongues and prophecy is that personal edification is good, but corporate edification is our purpose for gathering. Though you may be personally built up in your spirit, though you may personally make gains in your understanding, that's not the purpose for gathering. When we meet together, we need to have such an others-first focus that we don't move on and leave people without understanding. Or we don't move on and don't care if anyone else was built up because I had a good time at church today. That should never be our focus. That no child left behind mantra that's kind of faded into oblivion now. We should have this idea as we gather together that there's no member left behind. But everyone coming along together in understanding and edification. Of course, God has given you your individual understanding of things. He's given you individual experiences that have built you up, that have grown you as a Christian. They've benefited you, and you should embrace those. But God has also given you perspective through His Word. And when we come together, the goal, the priority is for all of us as one body to grow together. Others need to be prioritized in the meeting. Can you imagine if we came here this morning, if I said, okay, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Everyone read it. Now, meditate on that for a while, and then we'll close with prayer. Now, some of you are going to get a lot out of it. Others of you will be really confused by the passage. And if that is what we did, we would recognize we didn't really advance the ball today. We didn't really grow together today. We didn't mature together today. We didn't seek that we were all built up today. Because you could leave here and go home and say, oh, wow, that was, that was nice. I got something out of that. But what about the person next to you? The Corinthians were not thinking that way, and Paul here is pointing them to a habitual pursuit of group edification a habitual pursuit of group edification. And this is such an important point in the church today. So many churches that don't even know who's attending, so many churches where people, it's designed for people to slide in and slide out. That's not the purpose of meeting. That person may be personally edified in some way, may personally grow in understanding in some way, but that's not the purpose of the meeting. The purpose of the meeting is that all together we would grow in our knowledge, that all together we would be built up in our spirit. 
So one more aspect, before we get into the details of tongues and prophecy, I want to mention one more aspect of these enduring principles that are in this section. In light of our motiv motivations for gathering, the motivations of understanding, group understanding, edification, group edification, the Word of God, the Bible, must be foundational to our church services. The Word of God must be central, must be fundamental to our meeting and to our gathering. The Word of God is our authority and it's our foundation. All beliefs and all practices that we have must be founded on the Word of God. Otherwise, we don't trust those beliefs. We don't trust those practices. Those are just opinions. But as they are founded on the Word of God, the Word of God must be central to what we're doing. Do you remember Ephesians 2.20? It's a very important verse when we talk about miraculous sign gifts and things of that nature. But in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says that the foundation of the church are the apostles and prophets. And we have, by God's sovereign grace, the enduring work of the apostles and prophets right here. The enduring work, the Word of God that will not fade away. We have it right here. And this must be central to what we're doing. It's our foundation. The work of the prophets and apostles is our foundation. And so we hold on to it and we make it central to our meeting. Hearing and understanding what God has said, not just hearing it, because lots of people can hear it, but understanding it, hearing and understanding the Word of God is paramount to our gathering together. The only way that we can fulfill our mission to know God, to make God known, to build one another up, the only way we can do this is by the Word of God. It's by the prophecies that have been given through the apostles and prophets, preserved for us, sitting in your lap. Praise God that we have that. We have the Word of God and we keep the Word of God central. So it is from this perspective then that the Corinthians were to pursue spiritual expressions in their church meetings. The perspective of collective understanding, collective edification. That is how they were to express their gifts in the church. Now, with all that said, let's read verses 1 through 5 again to consider what Paul is writing to them in their context. Pursue love, he says, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, there's the problem, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. For one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, there's the solution, and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, there's the problem. But one who prophesies edifies the church, there's the solution. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets. Here's another solution, so that the church may receive edifying. As we think through tongues and prophecy, and all spiritual gifts really, we need to consider that just as not all tools have the same function in your life, whatever tools you work with, whether it's ratchets or needles and thread, <laughs> not all tools have the same function. Not all gifts have the same use. Not all gifts have the same effect. Not all gifts are to be used in the same way at the same time. But there's an order to these things. 
particularly with miraculous sign gifts, as you think of not only tongues and prophecy, but miracles, gifts of healing, uh, all of those revelatory gifts that existed in the first century that God gave to the early church, they all had unique functions as well. And with tongues in particular, we're learning in our passage today that tongues had a, a particular ability to edify the one who was speaking in tongues. Even without the translation of the tongue taking place, the one who was used by God to speak in a language was personally edified, though no one understood what was being said. And that's a very interesting element that we'll revisit momentarily. But we see in our passage, not just in the first five verses, but down later in the chapter, we see that tongues also was used in praying, tongues was used in singing, these languages that God miraculously bestowed on, on people in the early church, they were used in different settings for different effects. There were personal effects, namely edification, but there were also corporate considerations to be made. Now, I mentioned it briefly, but just to make clear, when the Bible talks about tongues, it's not talking about that babble that you'll see on Christian television late at night when they're showing some big charismatic church somewhere and people rolling around on the ground speaking in ecstatic speech. That's not tongues. Tongues are known languages. Anytime the Bible talks about tongues, it talks about languages that are real languages. But what was miraculous about speaking in tongues is that the one who was being used to speak in this language did not previously know the language that God would miraculously give that person the ability to speak with another language than what that person was familiar with. And speaking in a tongue evidently edified the speaker, but without translation of the tongue, that's the only edification that took place. The speaker would be edified, and yet no one else would get anything out of it. So as we think about personal tongue speaking versus corporate tongue speaking, someone who speaks without translation and someone who speaks with translation, it's kind of like eating a slice of bread versus bringing loaves of bread for everyone to share in. My wife has taken up bread making in the last few years, and she makes these just beautiful loaves of bread, and I love the heel. That's my favorite part. I like to get the heel, especially if it's just a I don't know, 30, 45 minutes outside the oven, it's still warm, and you just slather it with butter, and it is just so awesome. <laughs> now imagine if we're all together, and I come in, and I've got my favorite piece with all that delicious butter on there, and it is homemade bread. It smells like homemade bread. You know the smell when you walk into Walmart and Subway hits you with the smell of bread, and you gain five pounds just smelling it, and, uh, but it just smells so good. So I got the smell there, I got everything, and it just, boy, you guys should really try this sometime. It's really good, you know, and I'm eating my slice of bread. Well, I am very much edified in that moment, aren't I? <laughs> I am built up in my spirit. I get something out of that. I make great gains that day. And yet the rest of you are just left empty, empty-handed. Now, if I bring loaves of fresh bread with lots of butter for all of us to share in, we all participate. We all grow. We're all edified through that, right? We might not grow the direction we want to grow, but we grow and we gain together in those ways. Well, if you speak in a tongue, Paul says, if you speak in this language that apparently was outside of their region, a non-regional language, miraculously in the fellowship, that's an amazing thing that God is doing through you. But without translation, you're the only one edified. 
with translation, the whole church may be built up. And Paul's encouraging them to have a perspective of group understanding and group edification. Tongues are shrouded in mystery. Look with me again at verse 2. It says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Tongues require interpretation because on their own, there would be no understanding unless someone was visiting from someplace who knew such a language. Corinthians, who had been given that gift in that church at that time, didn't view the gift as something to be used for everyone to grow. In fact, we'll see later in the chapter that it was used as a sign for unbelievers, not just for themselves, but for the unbelievers who come in. But instead, the Corinthians took this gift from God and said, look what I can do. And they would get up sometimes at the same time, not even going one at a time, but at the same time, the Corinthians would get up and they would speak in these different languages. And can you imagine what that would sound like as everyone was together and no one was translating? You have these different languages that no one in the fellowship understood, yet the Corinthians were showing off. They were seeking to make themselves look really spiritual in the gathering on an individual basis. And Paul says, you've missed the purpose of the meeting. It says in verse 2 that they were speaking mysteries. They were speaking mysteries. And they were speaking to God. Now, what this means that they were speaking to God, well, obviously they weren't speaking to men because no one was translating for the men. So God was the only one who understood. He put the words in their mouths as they spoke using this gift. And the speaker was returning these words to God as praise. They were an instrument in God's hand in that moment to declare something about the character and nature of God, yet they didn't even understand in their mind. So they were speaking mysteries, Paul says. It means that the meaning of what they were saying was hidden. It wasn't uncovered, but it was hidden to them. It was hidden to everyone around them. Still, we see this amazing thing in verse 2 that the individual, or rather it's in um, verse 4, that the individual who's speaking in a tongue, even without translation, edifies himself. And I want us to dwell on this thought for a moment because this is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. That the one speaking in a tongue in the church service, not pursuing translation of the tongue, but speaking out in this language, not knowing the meaning of what was said, was still somehow edified by God. He edified Himself. And I've wrestled with this, and I've come to some conclusion on this, and you can follow me there, or you could say, no, I think you, you understand it all wrong, and We'll talk about that later, but this is the closest that I could, I could get to resolving this situation. The one speaking in a tongue was personally edified by the Holy Spirit. It says, again, verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. We know that just as the prophet wasn't doing the edifying of the church, but it was truly the Holy Spirit through the prophet that was doing such a work, that even the one speaking in a tongue wasn't doing all the work of edifying himself, but the Holy Spirit was somehow edifying the speaker, using him as an instrument of praise. Now, some look at this and say that this must have been some sort of ecstatic speech, which I've already told you I don't believe is the case. But in Corinth, there were pagan temples where people would go and speak Babel. 
they would go and participate in pagan worship services to certain gods, and they would be instructed to relax their mouths and to let forth whatever sound, whatever noise would come out of them as they were led in some spiritual way. This was demonic worship, Paul says, back in chapter 10. He told us that this is uh, the worship of demons, that they're actually not worshiping God, but they're worshiping demons. And some some commentators think that these Corinthians brought that type of culture into the church at Corinth and that they would show up and try to do their babble speak in the gathering. Some say that the Holy Spirit would actually give people babble speak to speak, that the language that they would get when they would speak in tongues from the Holy Spirit would be this rabba-dabba-lashadabapapa stuff that you see on TV. Uh, if you grew up Pentecostal, you would actually be instructed in some ways to speak in this way. They would give you tips on how to do it. And some people believe that the Holy Spirit, not only then, but even today, bestows Babel speak to God's people, and then they can speak mysteries of God in such nonsensical speech. Well, I believe that these are known languages. I think it's really hard to say that this is any type of ecstatic speech. The Bible doesn't speak of such a thing. I would have a, a hard time seeing that in any text in the New Testament that talks about tongues. So what's happening here? Well, someone's having a personally positive spiritual experience by speaking Portuguese when they didn't know Portuguese, by speaking German when they didn't know German, by speaking Japanese or Afrikaans or something when they didn't know those languages, yet they were being used by God to speak those languages even without translation. They were personally edified. And so what this means then, I mean, you have to think about, well, what what does that imply? What does that mean? Well, it means that we're not only edified on a personal level through our understanding, but God, even apart from our understanding, sometimes edifies us, builds us up. The one speaking in a tongue without translation in the church was still being edified somehow, even though he didn't understand what he was saying. And God is able to do such a thing in our lives. Think of when we sing. When we get together and sing songs, the awesome praise songs that we sing in this church, there's obviously an element of understanding because there are words in a book or words on the screen, and we read the words, and we connect the words to Bible verses, and there's understanding there. But you have to admit, too, that isn't there an element happening there that's outside of pure head knowledge? Something about singing with God's people that goes beyond just, oh, those are nice, true words. There's something else there. And when you first began your Christian life and you didn't know what a lot of these words meant, weren't you still edified by the singing? You would sing one of our deep, rich theological songs that we love around here, and maybe you caught 5% of it, but you were still 100% edified by God's Spirit through it. In Romans 8, It talks about the Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Who understands that? I don't. I don't understand that. I I, I think there is an element of things that we know and we grow in our knowledge, but isn't there also an understanding where we commune with God by His Spirit's power? We're built up by the presence of God. I think very much that's the case. Gordon Fee, on this very point, he said this, in his commentary, that Paul believed in an an immediate communing with God by means of the Holy Spirit and the human spirit that sometimes bypassed the mind. It is only at a later period in history, conditioned by the so-called enlightenment, 
that people in the Western world would think otherwise. It's an amazing thing that these Corinthians, who didn't even have the right perspective on why they should be gathering, who weren't able to translate their own tongues that they were speaking, would still somehow be edified. That's an amazing thing. And again, that's a difficult passage to understand, but that's the closest I could come to reconciling what Paul was saying with with what I understand from the Word of God. So Paul, it's important to note that in all this, Paul doesn't instruct them to avoid tongues. Look at the beginning of verse 5. He says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Isn't that just an amazing phrase? Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. So he's not asking them to avoid tongues because of the abuses that have been taking place in Corinth. Don't avoid them, just use them rightly. Don't avoid the gift, employ the gift. But when you come together as a church body, employ the gift the right way, pursuing corporate understanding and corporate edification. He outlines the limits of tongues. Look again at verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Without translation, that's the limit. Without translation of that tongue, no one else is built up, only the speaker. And look down at the second half of verse 5. He says that if there's someone who interprets, the church may receive edifying. So the limits can be opened in this gift, but only through translation and interpretation. Without translation, tongues was not helpful in their meeting. Now let's talk about prophecy for a moment, because the other gift at play in this passage is the gift of prophecy. And Paul even says in this passage that prophecy is greater than tongues. One who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Why was prophecy considered to be greater? Well, prophecy was a direct message from the Lord, a direct message from the Lord for all people in their language. Have you noticed that when God spoke to people in the Bible, or when an angel even spoke to people in the Bible, they never said, oh, I I don't understand you. Could you speak another language? (laughs) That wasn't the case. When God reveals something, He reveals it in the language that you speak. When God directly reveals through prophecy, through some sort of revelation, He is revealing it in a way that you will understand directly. The exception, of course, is the gift of tongues, which required translation for corporate edification. But as we think about prophecy and how we can define it, I want to give you three definitions from three different theologians from different parts of the theology spectrum, but they agree on this. The first is from Robert Saucy, and Robert Saucy says that prophecy, in the biblical sense, should be speech which is inspired by the Spirit and therefore totally true and authoritative. So it's speech that's inspired by the Spirit, and what's the result of that? Totally true and authoritative. That's important to make note of, okay? The next uh, definition is from Leon Morris, He says, prophecy is not the delivery of a carefully prepared sermon, but the uttering of words directly inspired of God. So when you hear prophecy, there's some theologians out there that'll want to say that teaching and preaching, those are subsets of prophesying. There's just no biblical warrant for that. Uh, That's just not the case. Prophecy was always direct revelation from God. And then thirdly, this is from David Farnell. He says, while the teacher, different from prophet, while the teacher considers the past and gives direction for the present on the basis of what took place or what was said then, the activity of the prophet looks toward the future. 
Prophecy has the primary elements of prediction and revelation involved. All true prophecy rests on revelation. This is the only definition I gave you that mentions the predictive element of prophecy. So often when we think of prophecy, we think of people who were able to tell what was going to happen in the future. But if you read through, particularly the Old Testament prophets, there's just a single-digit percentage of their books that talked about the future and talked about predictive things. Rather, they were giving revelation to the nations about what God said about them, how God judged them, what God desired for them to do. So even though the predictive element is a part of what prophecy is, the foundational definition of prophecy is God's revealing miraculously to a human being authoritative truth. The prophets always spoke with authoritative truth because that's how God equipped them. So you can consider then by nature how the gift of prophecy led right into understanding and edification. The gift of prophecy, hearing a word from God, if I were just to stand up here and to read to you, um, like Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, if I said, okay, God's got a letter to Orchard Hills Bible Church, if I were to stand up here and just to read to you, if that was what God was still doing today, if I was an apostle, you can see how that would lead to a direct edification for us all, because God was speaking to us in our language, in our context, answering our questions, building us up in what we needed to know. Yet tongues required translation, which was a hurdle to understanding. Prophecy, on the other hand, had no such hurdle. Paul was concerned for the whole church, and tongues was a two-part process, the speaking of tongues and the translation. The Corinthians didn't share Paul's view, by and large, of group edification in the church. Therefore, they were only doing half of the work when it came to tongues. They were notoriously self-centered, they were seeking to show off, and they missed the point of the gathering which is that we would all understand and be built up. Prophesying, Paul says, helps the whole body, the whole body of Christ. Look at verse 3 again. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, for consolation. The end of verse 4, the one who prophesies edifies the church. Speaking with this miraculous, revealed truth from God builds up the whole church. Therefore, as an expression of love, prophesying was to be pursued in the Corinthian church. Look back with me at verse 1, the start of this chapter. Paul says, pursue love. Pursue love. That word for pursue is rightly strong. The word that's used in Greek is the word dioko. It means to hunt down. In fact, it's actually used in the New Testament in reference to persecution. It's the same type of verb, to hunt something down, to pursue to the end. So often in the New Testament, though, it's used for the Christian to pursue things like love. In fact, before we named the coin, the coin, we were going to name it the Dio. It was one of the ideas we tossed around. It's the place where we get together to pursue together, to pursue knowledge, to pursue love, to pursue edification, to hunt down something earnestly. And in this case, it's the serving of one another in love through the spiritual gifts that build everybody up, through the gifts that 
lift us all, not just in understanding, but in edification. Paul desired, he says, that all would speak in tongues and that all would prophesy in Corinth because he desired that everybody would be lifted up, everyone would be edified. Now, when Paul said that, he, he wasn't saying that that was going to happen. Earlier in the, in the letter to them, he said, I wish that you were all like I am, single. <laughs> and obviously, we recognize that's not going to be the case for everybody. But Paul is saying that he could wish such a thing because these were good gifts that God gave to his people. And Paul is also saying that they were all eligible for participating in these gifts. Pursue these things. Desire earnestly these gifts. I wish that you would all have these gifts. They were all eligible for such gifts, but the gifting of them was up to the sovereign spirit, just as he willed. These gifts were so important at this time in the church. They did not have the completed work of apostles and prophets as we do. They didn't have that. So they were to pursue hearing from God. They were to pursue tongues and prophesying. But if tongues, always translation. And for us today, we must pursue word-based ministry. For us today, how do we love one another? How do we get to the place of group understanding and group edification? How do we do that? Through word-based ministry. The result of the prophets, the result of the apostles, the Bible, the Word of God, this is what edifies us, and this is how we best love each other in the gathering. If we pursue not to be nice to one another for the sake of being nice, not to be liked, not to be thought of well by others in the fellowship, setting all that aside and seeking the best for one another which would be understanding and edification based on the Word of God. Could we do better than that? I don't think we could. (laughs) Than pursuing understanding and edification rooted in Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank You for Your Word and for the message that You've preserved for us. Lord, keep us from the errors of the Corinthians, that we would not seek after ourselves, that we would not seek to puff ourselves up, that we wouldn't even seek just to build ourselves up. But as we gather together, we would have the focus on one another, that each one would understand, that no one would be left behind, that each one would be built up by your work through your word. Please give us that vision, that goal, that desire together, that we wouldn't be in factions like the Corinthians, but that we would be together as one unit, one body, one family that you've created for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.